display wherever we are. Lord, would you begin to press on us the call to be the church and to rightly represent you in all that we do and in all that we say. Do this, Lord, and we would be grateful. And we ask it as your people in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we continue each week trying to paint a portrait, stroke by stroke, pixel by pixel, of what the church is according to Scripture. What does the Bible say that the church is? Not our own gut instincts, not our personal preferences, uh, that we would see the church not so much as a building with a steeple, with offices and classrooms and gymnasiums and HVAC units, but we would see the church as what God describes it as in Scripture, which is a people called to worship Him and represent Him to the world in the way that we live, in the character that we model, in the people that we are. That is the church according to Scripture. And each week recently, we've looked in the Gospels at teachings from Jesus, be they parables or what He would offer in the way of miracles. And this morning, we're going to turn our attention to the Sermon on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. We're going to spend several weeks here and hear some of this kingdom talk that He gave His disciples. And you'll hear some language of, well, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And you're going to see that Jesus begins to raise the bar for the right understanding of His people, for who we're supposed to be. But once again, you're going to see that every single one of us fails to meet the bar. And if we can push down on it and lower it, we'll try to. But Jesus is always raising the bar. He's raising the standard of righteousness in such a way that you and I will walk away saying, nobody can meet that standard except for Christ alone. So give your attention this morning to Matthew chapter 5. As we are jolted and shocked by what Jesus has to say, and that you will hear bad news and then good news. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray that God would bless our understanding of His Word. Lord, that is our prayer. Would You bless our ability to hear understand 
believe and apply what Jesus is teaching his disciples. Lord, would you make us faithful disciples? And we ask this and pray it in Christ's name and for the good of his church. Amen. Enemies. Enemies. We all have them, even from the youngest age. So my memory is that his name was Biff. B-I-F. Biff. And it's obvious that he's going to be the enemy in this story. A name like Biff could only be an enemy, right? I don't, maybe you know nice Biffs. This is the only Biff I've ever known. It was 1976. I was six years old, and we lived on Warner Robins Air Force Base in Warner Robins, Georgia. Biff was just a few years older than me, old enough that I would apparently listen to him and do whatever he said to do. So on this day in 1976, Biff convinced me to roll my big wheel that plastic trike that was the ultimate joyride for every six-year-old, to roll my big wheel out into the street, to turn it on its side, and to sprawl out as if I had been the victim of a car accident, as if someone had hit me. It'll be great, Biff said. It will be funny, Biff said. When some adult sees this or some car comes up behind and sees this. And so I did that very thing. I turned my big wheel on its side. I sprawled out as if I'd been hit. And just moments later, there would be an adult who saw this. As my mother looked out through the kitchen window and saw her youngest child apparently hit by a car. And she came racing out of the house to me in the street to find me laughing and giggling at her horror and her panic. And all that fear for me, once I was laughing, suddenly turned to discipline. And I was sent to my room for the day and reminded, however gently or harshly, to never do that again. Biff. My friend, Biff who was no friend at all. Biff would go on later to take some of our toys and never return them. And to this day, all of us in my family, we remember Biff. Bad news Biff. Biff was no friend to any of us. Biff just seemed to bring harm to us. You know, we all have enemies of some kind. That's my earliest memory of any kind of conflict or, or rivalry. And you have those memories too. I talked to some of you this week and heard stories of childhood neighborhood gangs and their rivalry of tearing down forts and rebuilding forts. And we, all have, we have all had enemies, enemies of some kind or another. Now, why is that? We've all had enemies, whether young or old, because we are creatures of conflict. Since Genesis 3, we are children of the fall. And there's something very wrong with all of our hearts. The human heart is bent towards conflict. Let me give you a few examples. Martin Luther 
Yay, Martin Luther had enemies, right? Uh, I found this about one of his enemies, Johann Eck. In the late 1400s, early 1500s, Luther called Johann Eck that monster. Eck was a professor of theology that fiercely debated Luther on the issue of indulgences. And this pained Luther deeply because they were old friends. They had been friends. And Eck was a fellow German. He wasn't like Luther's Italian opponents. And it pained Luther greatly. And when they would have a great debate and a great conflict, a public debate in 1519 at the University of Leipzig, it would be Eck versus Luther. And Luther would arrive in town for that debate with 200 students of his armed with battle axes for an 18-day academic debate. Now, where is the spirit of the good debate of our day? Academia. 200 students armed with battle axes for the academic debate. Luther had enemies. That's just one of them. I was going to read some of the things he said about his enemies, but thought it may not be appropriate on Valentine's Day, if you know Luther and his, his charisma. You know, John Calvin had his enemies. These are some of, some of our theological heroes, some of our theological fathers in the faith. I've had enemies. You've had enemies. Right? There's something about the human heart the fall of Genesis 3, where we are just bent towards conflict. Conflict with people. We are children of the fall. But in that context, with that conflict in all of our hearts, it was true of the disciples of Jesus. And to them, He said, His people are to be different in the world. Our conflicts are not excused We're to be a different kind of people in the world. And in verses 44 and 45 of the passage that we read from Matthew 5, Jesus says we are to love our enemies. We're to pray for those who persecute us. Now the King James Version nuances this, actually fleshes it out a bit more, and it says that we're to bless them that curse you, Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Well, that fleshes it out pretty powerfully. And these are true of our petty conflicts, our petty little human enemies. That's what we're talking about here. Jesus is talking about our propensity to have conflict with people who are not like us, People that look different from us, that think differently than us, we are prone to conflict with them. We are prone to make enemies of them. Now, it is true that enemies exist in all different ages, at all different seasons of life. You've had enemies in preschool. I can merely mention the name Ryan. And some of you in here will remember childhood memories from preschool of someone named Ryan. That's an inside joke right now. Uh, I can mention to you the thought of middle school and enemies and conflicts you had with classmates. 
or maybe teammates in high school or even in college. I've joked with my Erskine students in a way that is too close to the truth through the years that those kids who look like they're going to be great roommates and hit it off early in the fall of their freshman year may not even be talking to each other by Christmas. And sometimes that's been true. We're prone towards conflict. It doesn't take much for us to make enemies out of people. Why, I've even visited local retirement centers and found that rivalries and conflicts exist there between the people that live there because so-and-so shows up to the dining hall and takes my table every day, right? We are prone towards conflict. We are prone towards rivalries. It is a statement about the human heart. And Jesus says, my people, they've got to be different in the world. They've got to represent me in the world. Now, at the end of the passage in verse 48, we hear the, the strong words of, therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And this is where Jesus is raising the bar. Now, it's true that the teachers, the scribes and teachers of the law at this time, they literally were teaching that you were to love your neighbors and hate your enemies. And Jesus says there that you've heard that this has been said. That's what the scribes were actually teaching. It was a misrepresentation of the Old Testament of how God's people were to be in the earth. And so Jesus is correcting that with authority, with spiritual authority, and He's raising the bar. He says, you're to be perfect. And every one of us who's honest should hear that news with a sense of who can be perfect but God alone. We, we can't be perfect. It's not in me to be perfect. I can pretend to be nice, but at night I'll lie in bed restless thinking about that email, thinking about that conversation at work thinking about the way someone looked or spoke of me. Have you had these experiences? That's how we are. Our hearts will ball up like a fist in conflict with our neighbor and make an enemy out of them. And Jesus says we're to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. You should feel the tension. Jesus intends for you to feel the tension of that statement because you and I are not perfect. Now, what did Jesus do? In Christ, God has perfectly loved and prayed for His enemies. Jesus would model that He is like His Father in heaven. And He alone is perfect. You see, when we were estranged from Him... He loved us. 1 John 4.10 This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. When we were estranged from God, when we were aliens to God, when we were in hostile relationship with God, He came low and loved His enemies he came low and served His enemies. And when wounded and pierced by His enemies, Jesus prayed for them. Jesus models that 
in Scripture. Listen to these few incidents of what we're told in Scripture about how Jesus would pray for His enemies, and then those who followed Jesus would learn to do the same. Jesus taught in Matthew 5.44 to do good to those that hate you. And that would include the ones who drove the nails in His innocent hands and wrists. In Luke chapter 23, we're told that Jesus prayed of those who persecuted Him, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's practicing what He has preached here in Luke 23. The Apostle Paul, echoing the teaching of Jesus in Romans 12, says, if your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And then in the book of Acts, which we'll look at after Easter, Stephen, while being stoned in Acts chapter 7, Stoned to death by enemies. You remember what he prayed? Like Jesus, he prayed, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. So Jesus is saying, be perfect. And he's showing that his followers, something can be at work in them to make us more like our heavenly father. Never like him perfectly in this life, but able to be like him increasingly more. Essentially, Jesus reveals to us that there are two kinds of love. There are two kinds of love. There is an easy, earthly love, which is verses 46 and 47. That, he says, is a love that is common to man. It's a love that greets its own and that cares for people who are just like us. Now think about that. It's a love that greets its own and cares for those who are just like us. And of that easy earthly love, Jesus says, even the despised tax collectors and sinners, even they, the pagans, can do these things. There's nothing remarkable about that kind of love. Anybody can do that, Jesus says. And the second kind of love is that hard, heavenly love. It is a love that is otherworldly. It's a love that is not from this place. It is a love from God Himself. It's a love from another world, another place, untainted by sin. A love that shows mercy and grace to those who are not like us. A love that will do nothing, that will do something when nothing can be done in return to you. This heavenly love is a selfless kind of love. It's a love that's not driven by your own passions or your own affections. It's from another world, it's from another place, and it's worked in you by God Himself. Martin Lloyd Jones, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, sums it up well this way with this quote. He says, the only thing that can enable a man to not hit back, to turn the other cheek, to go the second mile, to give his cloak as well as his coat, to help others in desperate need, is if he is dead to himself, dead to his self-interest, 
dead to every concern for himself. And he's precisely right. The only way to have this kind of love is to be put to death spiritually. To have your old man that is so enamored with yourself put to death. And to be given a new heart that would care about honoring the perfection of our Heavenly Father and trying to model and image and bear His likeness in the earth. But you and I can't do it perfectly. And the standard is righteousness. The bar is high. It's perfection. Therefore, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So what does this mean for us? What does it mean for you? When you're lying in bed at night or early in the morning and you just are stewing with anger towards an enemy. When you're having a conflict that follows you home from work or from the gym or from the neighborhood or wherever, what hope is there for you? Well, first, as was true last week, there's bad news. The bad news is is that standard is perfection. The standard is righteousness. It's the impossible standard of righteousness, not just with our enemies, but in all of our relationships. Jesus says the standard is, is righteousness for us in all of our relationships, not just with your enemies. Now, think for a minute how we can't even get this right in our own households. Is your love for your family truly righteous? Is it truly perfect? You know, it's Valentine's Day. It's the day of love. It's the day of affection. How many people have checked the box and done what they're supposed to do? Right? That's not real righteous. And we do everything that way. Checking boxes. Okay, I've done this. There is a standard of righteousness and we can't meet it in our own households. We are selfish towards our family members, our spouses, our children. We don't have a righteous love. And if we can't do it in our household with the people that we love the most, how would we ever do it with enemies, with the people we're conflicted? Do you see, when Jesus raises the bar and says the standard is righteousness, the standard is perfection, The hope for us in meeting that would be like taking an average swimmer and dropping him in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, the largest and deepest body of water on the earth, and then telling that swimmer, swim to shore and you will live. Well, that's a true statement, but it's an impossible standard. It's an impossible standard. Jesus raises the bar in such a way that you and I should be overwhelmed. Righteous in all of our relationships? I'm not righteous at home. How could I be righteous towards my enemy whom I despise? And then the good news of that, once that bad news strikes you, jolts you, shakes you as it should, the good news is that there is one perfect Israelite. And his name is Jesus. And he substitutes his righteousness, his perfection for his people's sinfulness. He makes this great exchange that he reveals to us in Scripture where he takes his perfection and his righteousness 
And if you look to him in faith, he gives it to you without money, free of cost. And he takes from you your sinfulness in this great exchange. And he wears our sinfulness while we wear his righteousness. And all of that is called the good news of the gospel. And that's what gospel means. It means good news. You know that. You've heard this. You've sung this. But we can't hear it enough. You've got to hear it over and over and over again. Because your heart, like mine, will clench up like a fist and make an enemy out of anyone, even God Himself. That's how conflicted and sinful our hearts are. Now, Jesus raises the bar. He shows the standard cannot be reached by us. And through the rest of the Gospels and all of His teaching, He's always revealing how He is that one perfect Israelite. He will meet that standard. He will exceed that standard. He will do it for those who look to Him in faith. And so if you track with this teaching closely, you should always hear, ooh, but that sounds like bad news. Ooh, but that sounds like bad news. Ooh, but that sounds like bad news. And it is if you're trusting in your own righteousness. But to those who will look to Him in faith and experience that great exchange of His righteousness for our sinfulness, oh, now we have a reason to sing. Now we understand what it is to be the church, to be a people filled with hope, the promise of mercy and grace, acknowledging our sins and our imperfection, but pointing to His perfection and His righteousness, having made the great exchange, believing that it is in Christ alone, as we'll sing in just a minute, that He has given us the gift of love and the gift of righteousness. The two things this passage calls of us, to love our enemies and to meet the standard of righteousness. We fail that test of true religion in Matthew 5. In Christ alone, we're going to sing that He has given us a gift. It's a gift of love. It's a gift of righteousness. Have you made the great exchange? Have you exchanged your sinfulness for His righteousness? Jesus is pointing to Himself and saying, You've got to make that exchange. He will make that exchange when you look to Him in faith. And when you do look to Him in faith, you want others to know. You want to go and tell. You've got to experience the great exchange yourself. You've got to experience it. Let's pray for that kind of joy, that kind of hope, and to be those kinds of people in the world. Let's pray. Oh Lord, would You do these very things? Would You humble us to see that that standard of righteousness, that bar is too high for us to hurdle? Lord, would You give us the grace and the mercy to know that looking in faith to Jesus is what He's been calling us to do all along. That one perfect man, that one perfect keeper of the law, He is our only hope. Lord, it's in Christ alone at Greenwood Presbyterian Church that we have confidence, that we have hope, 